Finally, 441 days after the CDC implemented a federal mask mandate for public transportation, a federal judge has struck down the stupid rule which was set to expire yesterday before the bureaucrats decided to extend it for another two weeks. Two weeks, where have we heard that one before? District Court Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell ruled that the extended mandate, quote, exceeded the CDC's statutory authority, improperly invoked the good cause exception to notice and comment rulemaking, and failed to adequately explain its decisions. I actually got a text from a friend of mine when this came out. He was 30,000 feet traveling on a flight, and he said, wow, you're not going to believe it. The captain just came over the loudspeaker and said that the mask rule is no longer in effect, and almost everyone took their masks off. Other people got videos of this happening on flights around the country. Take a listen. The Biden administration announced that the Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. Effective immediately, and everybody is very, very excited about this because this judge found that the good clause exception did not hold here. The good clause exception is a provision of the Administrative Procedures Act that allows D.C. bureaucrats to break the rules for rulemaking when compliance would be, quote, impracticable, unnecessary, or contrary to the public interest. So if an emergency required an agency to act with haste, it would be permitted to cut corners. But we're more than a year and a half into this nonsense. If there ever was an emergency that permitted this kind of power grab, we are certainly long past it. This is great news. As you can see, the people are so excited there in that video on the flight. I've got a flight on Thursday to Boston. I'm giving a speech at Boston University. I look forward to testing the rule. Perhaps I can become the Rosa Parks of airplane muzzles. But the ruling is bittersweet. If all those people on that airplane were so happy to take the mask off, as we know that they are, as we know that we all were when we were flying around and taking public transportation, why didn't we just all do it? Why did it take 441 days? This is a bittersweet moment because it shows us just how far our country has fallen. It shows us just how much the ruling class, our crooked ruling class, has taken from us. We are 109 weeks into two weeks to slow the spread, and we're celebrating that our rulers might now finally allow us to breathe again. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. My favorite comment yesterday is from Vita Tipple, who says, Michael, I'm getting worried for you. Your show was so hard hitting and so on the money that you're likely to make some very powerful people very cross. I hope you've got a good security team around you. Thank you very much for your concern. We do have good security here at the Daily Wire. And most importantly, I haven't been revealing too much information on the Clintons. So I think my health is secure. I, I've been going after a lot of the crooks here in our, in our country and in our world, not just Biden, but the corporate leaders, not just the corporate leaders, but the institutional investors, 
We were going yesterday after BlackRock, after State Street, some of those big investors that are pressuring the woke, corp- the, the regular corporations to become woke corporations with regard to Twitter, with regard to all of these other political issues. But as long as I don't go too hard after Bill and Hillary, I, I hope that I will not be suicided anytime soon. I, I think that I can sleep easy. One of the reasons I can sleep easy, my bowl and branch sheets. Right now, go to bowlandbranch.com, use promo code Michael. Put simply, Bolin Branch are the greatest sheets I've ever used. Period. That's it. End of discussion. They use the best 100% organic cotton threads on earth for a superior softness and better night's sleep. The sheets are not just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every single wash. They got me hooked. These guys, they're like a drug dealer hanging around a bad neighborhood. They gave me a little bit to try back when Bolin Branch first came on the show. And now I'm hooked. I'm a sucker. They got me. I'm buying sheets left and right. I'm buying them for family members. I'm buying them for me. They're just amazing. And fortunately, because their prices are so reasonable, you can sleep like you're at a five-star hotel every single night for not a lot of money. Did you miss the Bolin Branch April sale? Well, our listeners get exclusive access to a post-sale 20% site-wide discount through the end of April with promo code Michael. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code Michael for 20% off through the end of April. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, guys. I'm really excited. I am. I'm, I hate those stupid masks. Every time the stewardess walks away on the flight, I take the dumb mask down. I, I'll, I've been cheating at these things from the beginning. I don't wear the masks in the airport, but sometimes they'll get you. They'll say, you can't, sir, you will not be allowed to board the flight if you don't put your stupid mask on. And then they've got you. Either you cancel the trip or you put the dumb mask on. And in not all, but in most cases, I felt it's worth doing the trip, speaking at some liberal place, speaking and talking about how dumb the masks are. I felt that was worth the cost. But is this really what we've come to? I would bet 97% of people who take airplanes wanted to lose the dumb masks over a year ago. And we all just kind of went along with it. I would bet you 90% of stewards and stewardesses, except for the insane power trippers who love the masks, but probably 90% of them hate the dumb masks. There was one stewardess I saw a few months ago, who was wearing a mesh face mask. I thought it was great. I bet you 100% of the captains don't want to wear the dumb masks, and they probably don't up in the cockpit. And yet, we all just went along with it like little sheep. Even though we knew it was preposterous, as a medical matter, we knew it was completely ridiculous almost from the beginning. And as a political matter, it was absurd as well. And yet we went along with it. And now it takes one judge. I love this judge. She's phenomenal. She's a Trump appointee. She was put on the bench just a couple of years ago. She's 35 years old. So she's got a long career ahead of her, we hope. And uh, so I'm glad. But what? This is, this is what we've come to in America is we, our, our basic freedoms, our basic way of life, the ability to breathe freely is now contingent on the whims of a judge. That's not a great situation to be in. It's a good start. I don't want to clutch defeat from the jaws of victory. I'll take the win when I can get it. But we have a long way to go. News report out today. Just to show you, this is completely unrelated to the masks, but it shows you the the depth and severity of the political problem in the United States. You know, Florida passed this 
this parental rights and education law, which prohibits weird uh, sex education in elementary schools. Florida just in general has gotten a little bit tougher on keeping the radical leftist ideology out of the classroom, getting back to the ABCs, not the LGBs or the CRTs. And uh, so as a result of this, Florida has, here's the NPR headline, Florida has rejected 54 math books from the classroom because they say critical race theory appeared in some of those books. This is 54 math textbooks in K through 12 classrooms. That is a, a 41%, that's 41% of the 132 books that were submitted for review to the Florida Department of Education. And the libs are reacting to this. They're saying, this just proves how crazy the Florida conservatives are. They're banning books. They're, look at how, what, what an overreach this is in Florida. That's not my reaction. My reaction to this is, wow, what the hell were they teaching in those classrooms? What were, 54 books, 41% of the books in math class. We're not talking about history or civics or literature. Math, 41% of the books were teaching critical race theory and similar sorts of concepts. I'm not even, I'm not even really surprised when I reflect on it. Yesterday, we read a math assignment from Pennsylvania that was given out in 2017, so five years ago now, in which to get the right answer to the math question, you had to know facts about the radical leftist author Maya Angelou's life. So really very little surprises me these days. But when I see this, Florida bans 54 math textbooks, you know what that says to me? That says it's a good start. Good start. There's probably a long way to go though, because I bet there are a lot of books being taught in history in civics, they probably don't even have civics anymore, in English, in possibly in the hard sciences that are radical and leftist, and they need to be booted out of the classroom. And there's nothing anti-American about that or illiberal or contrary to education or whatever. A seventh grade classroom is not a thriving free marketplace of ideas where new scientific discoveries are going to be found. There's no broad academic freedom in middle school or high school for that matter. Parents have a right, the political community has a right to have a say in what its children are being taught because the purpose of K through 12 education is to form good citizens. The purpose of K through 12 education is to educate and give people a good solid foundation so that they can go and continue their studies and, and their vocational training and go on and become good upstanding citizens. And when you teach kids that America is evil and white people are evil and boys are really girls, when you teach them that, you're harming their education. There is a long way to go. I, I strongly suspect there are a whole lot more books we need to ban from the classroom because those books are not educating students. They are poisoning students' minds and poisoning our country. And if kids want to read them, they can read them on their own time, but they're not going to read them in taxpayer-funded classrooms. The, the libs always go back to this, this contradictory argument. They say, these books are not being taught, these ideas are not being taught in K-12, through and it's really important that they are. And thank goodness for my favorite Twitter account, Libs of TikTok, certainly in my top five favorite Twitter accounts. Thank goodness for them because Libs of TikTok is exposing the 
the corruption that we're seeing in the schools. The, these kooky school teachers, it, at the same time that the left-wing politicians are saying, this stuff isn't being taught, you crazy conservatives are tilting at windmills. This, at the same time that the liberal politicians are making that argument, the kooky teachers are going onto TikTok and saying, yeah, I, re- I do want to trans my five-year-olds, but unfortunately, the parents in Florida aren't letting me do it. It's, they're, they're, this is really elemental stuff, okay? Boys are different than girls. Right is different from wrong. Death is different than life. When we want to inculcate a culture of life, we got to check out 40 days for life. Abortion is one of those issues that is always kind of in the news, and it's about to be a whole lot more in the news because the Supreme Court might overrule Roe versus Wade. There's a very strong chance that they will. You need to know the arguments, okay? The arguments are all on the pro-life side. The scientific arguments, the ethical arguments. It's funny that the libs, which always say they want to follow the science, uh, do not follow the science on one of the most important issues, which is abortion. You need the best arguments you can get, which is why you've got to go check out the wonderful book from 40 Days for Life, the number two Amazon Christian bestseller, What to Say When, the complete new guide to discussing abortion, how to change minds and convert hearts in a brave new world. 40 Days for Life is based in Texas. It's one of the largest pro-life grassroots organizations in the country. They got a million volunteers in 1,000 cities holding peaceful 40-day vigils outside of abortion facilities to save lives and help abortion workers to leave their jobs. Get that book, What to Say When, today. Covers the old arguments, the new arguments, everything in between. Go get it at 40daysforlife.com to help end abortion wherever you live. Thanks to our friends at Libs of TikTok. We know that a middle school teacher in Florida is very, very furious because uh, in Florida, it is increasingly frowned upon to try to trans little kids. My state decided that it was a good idea to ban the use of the word gay in the classroom. Educators can now not, are not allowed to say gay in the classroom anymore. This is a life or death issue. Why do I say that? One of the most important statistics that I use in my curriculum when teaching anti-oppression, specifically about LGBTQIA issues, is 72%. You decrease the likelihood of a young trans person of wanting to commit suicide if all you do is use the proper pronouns for that person. 72%. You can save a life by using one often two-letter word for a person. Misgendering someone can have them go on a spiral where they don't want to live anymore. And now we're not allowed to say gay, even if we are gay, even if we have an openly same-sex relationship, even if we're openly non-binary or trans. As, As educators, we cannot talk about who we are. We exist. I've got one really important statistic for you to know when you are watching libs on TikTok, and that statistic is 420%. 420% of the statistics that libs on TikTok cite are completely made up. 420%. You can reduce your risk of losing IQ points 420% by not watching libs on TikTok. I obviously don't believe this statistic this woman is citing that 72, you're, if you don't call boys she and girls he, 
then you are going to encourage them to commit suicide. And if only you call them by the wrong pronoun, then you'll decrease their suicide suicidality by 70 plus percent. I just don't believe that. And one of the reasons I don't believe that is because uh, this woman is saying a whole lot of things in this video that I know for a fact are not true. Like you're not allowed to say gay in classrooms in Florida. That's just not true. That just isn't true at all. That's completely made up. It's nowhere in the Florida education bill. And it's just not the case. The, the woman is uh, saying that she is non-binary. Well, that's not true because that's not possible. That's not, that's not a real thing. So she isn't that. So she's, she's wrong. She, I'm not saying she's a liar, but she's certainly mistaken. She says that she teaches anti-oppression in the classroom. Where does that fit in, in the, in the school day schedule? Is that, so for, you have homeroom in the morning, then you've got social studies, maybe, then math class, then anti-oppression, and then English language and arts. Is that, and, and literature, is that what you've got? I don't know. Where is anti-oppression? No, this woman is a radical political activist who is using taxpayer dollars in Florida. I think that's the state that she's in, right? Yeah. She's using taxpayer dollars to indoctrinate little kids into her radical, weird leftist ideologies. She says, I'm not even allowed to be open about my same-sex relationships in the classroom. You certainly shouldn't be. Yeah, I don't, I don't want you teaching that in the classroom. That's weird. Don't talk about your sex life in the classroom period. Now, I don't think you should be talking about your sex life in any grade, but certainly not in K through three or pre-K in, until third grade. Certainly not. If only you use the wrong pronouns, then you will save a life. Even if it were true, I know it's not true, but even if it were true, it would still be wrong. This kind of emotional blackmail is the way to madness. Because it actually, <laughs> this is kind of a strange connection and it ties in with another creepy weird sex thing. But when I was at Yale with Senator Cruz last week, we were asked a question by this kid who obviously just wanted to get some headlines and tell a joke. He said, if it would end world hunger, would you perform a certain sex act on another man? And it was funny and people laughed in the room, but it's actually not a complicated question. The answer is no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> No, it wouldn't end world hunger. No, calling kids the wrong pronoun isn't going to reduce their suicidality or depression or anxiety. It's probably going to increase it by hardening their gender dysphoria. But no, I wouldn't do that because that's called consequentialism. That's, that's, that's called the ends justify the means. That is a morally idiotic way of viewing the world. That's called it takes a few, a, a few broken eggs to make an omelet. That logic, that by committing an intrinsically disordered evil action, you might achieve some good end, that has been used to justify the worst crimes in history. And it's morally incoherent, and it doesn't lead to good outcomes anyway. This kind of stuff is what's being taught all over the place. And it's not even just in San Francisco or LA or New York. Florida is a pretty red state. And this kind of stuff is being taught in even redder states. I was in Kansas. I was in Kansas to give a talk at Washburn University just a few weeks ago. Last I checked, Kansas is pretty conservative. Not exactly San Francisco or Chicago. And before I gave my talk, the, the president of that university, Jerry Farley, condemned me. He personally signed the contract inviting me to come speak. I was invited to speak on how boys and girls are different. 
And then he condemned me and he said, my views were terrible. This president of a public university said that the statement that boys and girls are different is terrible, horrible. We think this is awful. I'm terrible. I'm sorry the guy's invited. And I didn't back down and I went and I spoke anyway. And it was a totally packed out house. I invited the, the president of the university, Jerry Farley, to come. He could share the stage with me. He could present his alternative thesis to, to my very controversial one, that boys and girls are different. We could debate it. We could have a civil and open exchange. I didn't hear back from President Farley. He was much too cowardly to actually stand by his calumny against me and his defamation. And so he just hit up in his ivory tower. And I went there and I gave a speech about what a jerk that guy is and why my views are right. Felt it was respectful, but forceful. And then just saw this news story yesterday. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying I did this. I'm not totally taking credit for it, but I'm not, I'm not here. Well, here's the headline. Washburn President Jerry Farley to retire. I like that. Washburn University announced Monday afternoon during a news conference that Farley will retire on September 30th of this year. There he is. Is it because probably the worst scandal of Jerry Farley's career occurred just a few weeks ago because of little old me? Is it because Jerry Farley, a man who who dines on the taxpayer dollar, who uh, runs an educational institution, doesn't know the difference between boys and girls and actually condemns people who says that there are basic distinctions in biology and human nature? Might it have something to do with that? That he would smear, not just me, I'm a big boy with thick skin, but smear half of the... half of the country and a huge portion of students of his university who are conservative as hateful, misinformers, bigots, that sort of thing? Is it because he smeared what I would suspect is the vast majority of parents paying tuition who know that boys and girls are different? That he smeared them as hateful and bigoted and spreading misinformation? I don't know. But uh, one thing I will tell you is I'm really happy that he is stepping down. He is not fit to be the president of a university. A, a man who behaves in that way, a man who's that confused, sexually, intellectually, morally, whatever, that man has no business running a university. And frankly, it's scandalous that he ran it this long, if that's the kind of cowardice and intellectual decay that he is demonstrating. And we need to see a lot more of that. We see that Florida law or the, the consequence of various Florida laws to say, 54 math textbooks have been kicked out of the classroom for being too radical. Yeah, that's a good start. Jerry Farley stepping down. He's not the only one, and he's not even close to the worst of the offenders at these universities. He's, he's being booted out of the school, or he's stepping down, or however it's happening. I don't really care. I'm just glad it's happening. That's a good start. That's a good start. When I, I spoke a few years ago at a... a University of Missouri, Kansas City. Actually, it was not far from Washburn University. And the chancellor of that university, uh, Chancellor Agrawal, also, after I was physically attacked there, he came out and he smeared me. And it was the same sort of thing. He said that this is not in accord with our values here. We don't believe that men and women are different. That guy should be gone too. It's a scandal that he still holds that job. A lot of these guys, we have to get tougher. The modern conservative movement was launched with a book called God and Man at Yale, 
subtitled The Superstitions of Academic Freedom. And the point of the book was that academic freedom is a total lib psyop. It's not real. It has no it has it has meaning in as much as scholars are free to pursue their own interests in their studies, but it doesn't mean that wackos are free to teach whatever nonsense they want in a classroom. That is never what academic freedom was supposed to mean, in, even when it did sort of make sense. You don't have the right to do that. And, and the point of that book was basically that we need to fire bad teachers. We need to fire radicals. In, in Buckley's idea, radical atheists and radical socialists in the classroom, in university classrooms, much less K through 12. Got to do that. Folks, there, there are some true radicals on campus. At, at the university level, there is a professor at the University of New Hampshire who is coming out and saying that it is ineffective to call all sexual relationships between children and adults predatory. Speaking of predators, we got to be careful. We got to protect what's ours. And you need a will, which is why you got to check out Epic Will. Right now, go to epicwill.com. Use promo code Knowles. I, frankly, I just went back and redid my will myself. Epic Will, they got me thinking. I got a little baby. I got to do the responsible thing. It's very important that someday we're all going to go, when I go, that the assets that I have are spent in the way that I want them to be, in a way that I think is good, that my loved ones are going to be taken care of, okay? If you do not have a will in place, you have no say in the future of your children. Let that sink in. Your kids, your most precious asset. If you have not made a will yet, you're not alone, but we're going to make it super easy for you. Go to epicwill.com. When you use promo code Knowles, you will get a wonderful, incredible package starting at just $119. When you use promo code Knowles, you will save 10%. It's super duper easy. So right now, go to epicwill.com. This is the most important five minutes that you are going to spend all day. You know, sports are not supposed to be the place for radical, aggressive political speeches and virtue signaling. So NBA star Jonathan Isaac is one of the few professionals that knows that fact very well. Isaac faced heavy criticism from the media for not buying into the political theater over the past few years, and he still stood strong. That's why I'm super duper excited to announce that uh, Jonathan is writing a book with The Daily Wire called Why I Stand. Jonathan's book will be about the rise of his basketball career, his journey into faith, and his strength to stand alone in the face of immense pressure. The book is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. Reserve your copy today. Also, we got a great new short series that we're, we're going to be releasing somewhat regularly. I was out giving a speech at Washburn University. There was a protest organized against me. And so my producer decided to just walk outside with a camera and get some video and see what was going on. And then my producer actually invited the, the girl who organized the protest against me to come, cross her own picket line, sit down, watch my speech. And then she and I sat and spoke to one another for probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes after the speech. Go check it out. It's on my YouTube channel right now, the Michael Knowles YouTube channel. We'll be right back with a lot more. There's a professor at the University of New Hampshire who is quite insistent that we should not call all adult-child sexual relationships 
predatory. This would be Professor David Finkelhor. He is the director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center. He was giving a virtual talk called Sex Crimes Against Juveniles Involving Elements of Voluntary Participation, Implications for Prevention and Response. Without further ado, take it away, Professor Groomer. Also, if young people are initiating sexual activities with adults or enthusiastically involved, we can't be effective in working with them if we assume that all such relationships start with a predatory or criminally inclined, inclined adult. The, as, as we see in the discussion, young people bridle at being forced into this uh, box of being seen as being the victim of a predator. And so there are reasons for learning about what the dynamics are and, and how to talk about them so that we can um, better help the young people who are in these situations. Just to clarify here, this professor is not talking about a relationship between, I don't know, a 16-year-old and a 20-year-old. Uh, we're not talking about a relationship where uh, maybe it maybe or maybe not it violates the law, but maybe you know you can tell they're sort of within an age range that seems somewhat reasonable. They both could have been in college at the same time. They both could have been in high school at the same time. S sometimes these types of relationships are covered by what's called Romeo and Juliet laws. That's not what this guy's talking about. This guy's talking about relationships between kids, little kids, and old adults. We're not talking about 16 and 19. We're talking about like 12 and, and 40. <laughs> okay, we're, we're talking about the whole spectrum here of child, or younger than 12, and adult, maybe older than 40, sexual relationships. And his claim is, well, we shouldn't begin with the premise that all of these relationships begin with a predatory adult. No, I think we can. I'm pretty sure we can begin with that assumption. I think that is always the case. I don't think there's any exception to that at all. And uh, I think that this kind of logic is illogic, is really creepy and dangerous. But it, it's, I don't even just mean to beat up on this professor. He's frankly a symptom of a much larger social and philosophical problem. We're all focused on the will on the what the child wants, the child's desire. Traditionally in this country, we have age of consent laws. We have age of consent laws because we believe that kids cannot give mature, informed consent on a whole host of issues. This is why you're not allowed to get a tattoo until you're 18. This is why you're, there are limits to sexual activity that you can engage in until you are a certain age. This is why Little kids have to do what mommy and daddy tell them to do because they're not old enough to give consent. Now, as conservatives have said for years, you're going to see these laws eroded and you're going to see kids victimized. And it's a slippery slope, but we're slipping right down it. Now, we're being told that five-year-olds not only have perhaps the right to engage in a sexual relationship, they actually have the right to totally change their sexual biochemistry. They have the right to take cross-sex hormones. They have the right to mutilate their bodies and their genitals. 
That's what we're being told because, well, they know deep down that they're sexual creatures and we need to stop them from going through puberty so that their true sexual nature, which is contrary to their bodies, can come out. And it's just, it's just bogus. It's weird. It's creepy. The left has been peddling this stuff for a hundred years. Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders peddled all this kind of weird child sexuality that kids need to explore their sexuality. He peddled this in essays in the Vermont Freeman for, for years in the 1960s. It's nothing new but it is wrong. And what a lot of this derives out of is our now social refusal to say that anything is right or anything is wrong intrinsically. So everything has to be about consent. Hey, if, if two consenting people want to do X, Y, and Z, they're, they're totally free to do that. And I have no right to infringe on that. Who's to say what's good or bad or right or wrong? So as long as people consent. But then I, so when you, when you apply that to, to an adult with, say, transgenderism, if an adult consents to uh, call himself Sally and put on a dress, that's his right, and I have no right to infringe that. Well, then, then you are granting the possibility that the man could, in some deep sense, become a woman. And if that's the case, then certainly you should start that before puberty. Certainly you should do that before the secondary sex characteristics of a man set in. That'll make it a whole lot worse if those secondary sex characteristics set in, if transgenderism is true. The child is not consenting to puberty. That's the argument for putting the kids on puberty blockers. And there is some kind of logic to that. If you believe that consent is the be-all and end-all and exclusive criterion for determining whether an action is good or bad, but it's not. We, we can know beyond consent whether, whether this creepy professor says that the child is consenting to a sexual relationship with an adult or not, maybe the child is, is going up to bars and he's sneaking past the bouncer or she is sneaking past the bouncer and going up to adults and saying, hey, toots, let's get out of here. Even so, the child, whatever you want to call that, consent, pre-consent, sort of quasi-pseudo-consent, it doesn't matter. It's still wrong. It's just intrinsically wrong. And we can say that. Okay, we can have the confidence to say, nope, that's wrong, and you get punished, and I don't care if you're consenting to it, you don't get to do it, period. You're seeing this push all throughout the country. At Georgetown, there, there is a panel that's taking place this month on abolishing the sex offender registry. There's a panel, it's a Georgetown Defenders presents a panel on abolishing the sex offender registry, moderated by Professor Abby Smith. Virtual event, April 21st. I guess it's happening in a couple of days. RSVP here. I looked up this Professor Abby Smith. I thought maybe it's going to be a professor who says, no, we should definitely not abolish the sex offender registry. It's really good to know when you've got child molesters in your neighborhood, we need to protect people. No, this is a professor who has serious problems with the sex offender registry, who wants to keep more and more people off of the sex offender registry because it's not fair to them. It's not fair to those poor people. If you are... This is the professor's argument in certain articles that I've read by the professor. If someone finds himself on the sex offender registry, that's going to really, really harm his life. He's going to have a harder time in society. He's going to have a harder time holding a job. He's going to have a harder time fitting into a neighborhood. That's true. That's true. Because he is a rapist or a child molester. That's why. It's not because of the awful society and the, the unfair stigma around child rapists. It's because he committed that act and the society wants to protect itself from those people. Yes, 
that individual is stigmatized. Rightly so. By the way, maybe that individual has gone through a lot of therapy, has paid his debt to society, has reformed, has totally turned his life around. Maybe. I wish him the best. I hope he does that. I hope he is repented and goes to heaven someday. But we in society still have the right and the obligation, frankly, to protect ourselves from the real likelihood that that person could reoffend. I have one and a half kids. I got one kid out into the world. I got another kid on the way. I demand to know if there are sexual predators anywhere near my kids. I just demand it. That's my right. It's, it's not even because I hate the individuals who have committed these crimes. I hate them and I want to, I just, we just need to protect ourselves. Okay. And what the left has done here is, has so taken the side of criminals to the total neglect of victims. They, the left has so bought into the idea of indoctrinating little kids in weird sexual ideologies and normalizing all sorts of sexual disorders and frankly, cultivating those disorders in children, in grooming the kids, let's call it what it is, that they are neglecting the safety of the kids. That's what they're doing. You you see this point on the will, this point on desire, on consent. I know it's a little abstract. I know it's a little pie in the sky. Here's, Here's an example that I think can drive it home. And it actually comes from PETA. PETA tweeted out the other day, animals don't want to be eaten. And they just, they did that thing that libs do now, which is just, they repeat the same sentence five or six times. They said, animals don't want to be eaten. Animals don't want to be eaten. Animals don't. And I saw this and I thought, well, animals don't want. They just don't want. (laughs) They don't have a a rational will. (laughs) So yeah, no, they don't want. And Peter responded to me. Peter said, other animals are thinking feeling beings who have wants and needs just like you. You should want to be a kind person and make the world a better place. So there are, even from those first two words, they say other animals. Like you're just an animal, Michael. You, human beings, you're just animals, just like the cheetah, just like the insect. You're, you're just, and you all have wants and needs just like each other. And that's not true. And I I chalk it up to ignorance from PETA, but it's not true. I chalk it up to the extreme degradation of our understanding of the world today, but it's just not true. The misunderstanding comes from a misunderstanding of of the human will. So a heroin addict wants to shoot up heroin, right? Because it feels good. But a heroin addict also doesn't want to shoot up heroin. At a higher level, the heroin addict wants to quit heroin, because the heroin addict knows that heroin is bad for him. This, when St. Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do, he's describing the conflict between his two wills. The two wills are the lower will, which we call the appetite, and the higher will, which is the rational will. And traditionally understood, the rational will mediates between the lower will, the appetite, and the divine will. So to bring that back down to earth here, we have a moral conscience. We can know certain things that are good and bad and right and wrong and true and false. And so even when our loins and our, and our stomachs and our lower animalistic desires tell us, go eat the, eat the 10th taco, drink the 10th drink, sleep with that woman who isn't your wife, 
go do whatever your appetite is telling you to do. Your higher will says, nope, don't do that. That's wrong. You're going to, you're going to have a stomach ache. You're going to have a headache tomorrow. You're going to be in real big trouble with your wife. Don't do that. Even though part of you desires to do that. Animals don't have that higher will. So when animals see the food, they just go and eat it and they're going to go eat it until they get sick. They're just going to eat, 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 eat. Animals don't go courting. Animals don't have much of a sense of monogamy or fidelity. They generally just stoop whatever's out there. Animals pursue their instincts and their appetites. This is why we don't put animals on trial. When an a- if an animal goes and bites a human being, we might kill that animal. We might put that animal down. But we don't put that animal down because of justice or to get revenge. We don't put that animal down because we're even angry with the animal. We put the animal down to protect human beings. What we f- for sure don't do is charge the animal with a crime and put the animal on trial and have the animal defend itself. We don't accuse the animal of committing an immoral act because the animal doesn't have any moral conscience. That wouldn't make any sense. We are stewards of animals. We, we want to be good stewards of all of creation, but not because the animals want it, not because the animals will it. We do that because God wills it, and we have a moral conscience so we can understand these really basic things. In When it comes to parents, the job of a parent is not to just give in to every little child's disordered desire or will. It's not to say, eat as many cookies as you want. Oh, of course, it's your will. I have no right to infringe upon your... No, we say, no, enough cookies. Get your hand out of the cookie jar, kid. When a child, when a little boy says, I, I think I'm a girl because my pervert teacher in kindergarten told me I am. The, it's not the job of the parent to say, well, if that's your will, if that's your desire, then I, if that's your, tr-. no, the parent says, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not. I'm your parent and you're in my care and it is my responsibility to teach you the difference between true and false and right and wrong and good and bad. But these people, because we've lost any ability to make those moral distinctions. And morality in 2022 pretty much is just, if it feels good, do it. It's turned us all into animals. It's turned our, our civilization into a much more animalistic, bestial society. Because of that, we just boil it down to this incoherent conversation about consent. Speaking of consent, consent is back in the news for a completely different reason, not for the animals, not for the groomers, it's because of Colin Kaepernick. It's because if I, uh, every two or three months, this guy is back in the news. If I never heard the name Colin Kaepernick again, it would be too soon. This perfectly mediocre professional quarterback who's made a big spectacle of himself and many, many millions of dollars. He's, he's whining again that he doesn't get to play in the NFL. Colin Kaepernick, six years now, is it? since he made a big spectacle of himself and said that America's evil and disrespected the flag and was booted from the NFL and then made a lot more money selling hatred of America through sneakers than he ever would have made in the NFL. Colin Kaepernick is back begging, begging to be let back into the NFL. Are you willing to be, do what Carmelo Anthony did if an opportunity presented itself today and they said, we want to bring you in as the backup? Would you take that? Yeah. You'll take that. If an opportunity- I, I know I have to find my way back in. Okay. So, yeah, if I have to come in as a backup, that's fine. But that's not where I'm, that's not where I'm staying. And when I prove that I'm a starter, I want to be able to step on the field as such. I just need that that's opportunity to walk through the door. 
He just wants that opportunity. And he's willing to even go through some hardship for that. He knows, look, he knows it's really valuable for a person to be able to play in the NFL. And he knows he's been out of it for a little while. And so he's going to, he'll, he'll work as, he'll do a little bit of grunt work. He'll be the backup quarterback. And then he's going to work his way up because he needs to get back. He just wants so deeply. His desire, his will is to get back into the NFL. This from Colin Kaepernick, the same man who, what, a year or two ago said that playing for the NFL is like working as a slave on a plantation in the antebellum South. What they don't want you to understand is what's being established is a power dynamic. Before they put you on the field, teams poke, prod, and examine you, searching for any defect that might affect your performance. No boundary respected. No dignity left intact. Come on, boy, hurry up. Look at that shape there. Look at this. Mr. Farber, I got your bid. 30, James, 30 to you. 100. So, next one coming up, best one we got. 100. There we go now. 1,000. 1,000. I'm telling you what I want. Yeah, I heard you. So. There we go. There are the shackles. Well, Colin, you're free. You're free, Colin. You were previously enslaved by the NFL. You had that awful slavery of being really rich and famous and getting to do the thing that you trained your whole life to do. And now you're free from that. You're free and you get to be a clown. You're free to, you're liberated into clowndom. The guy, he looks like a clown. He talks like a clown. He is a clown. That's what he does now. Please, no, let me go back into slavery. Oh, you don't really think it's slavery. You just, you're very confused. He's a very confused man. And actually, though he is not aware of this, this does speak to our misunderstanding of liberation. The way we understand liberation today is that you don't have any obligations. You are not bound by any limits whatsoever, be they political, cultural, or even natural. So you're not even bound by the limits of your own sex. You get to just do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. Colin Kaepernick wants to go out there and make a big clown of himself and disrespect America and the flag and the fans. And he wants to, and there's not going to be any consequences for that, right? No. Because by the way, sporting events have always had a connection to patriotism going back to ancient Greece. So no, now the consequence is he's out. But no, I'm not, I don't, I, no, no, please, can I have the slavery again? No, you don't. I'm sorry, Colin. There's actually, you will find far more freedom in limits. The heroin addict breaks all of the chains, breaks all of the limits. He can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it, except he can't. And he's just a slave to sin. Then he's just a slave to vice. Speaking of live performances, speaking of uh, things that some people may or may not find entertaining, such as football, and speaking of airplanes, actually, getting to our first story, uh, there's a video that I have to get to. It's from Easter Sunday on an airplane at 30,000 feet, a group of Christian singers and a guitarist got up in the middle of an airplane and started playing modern worship music. 
I love the idea of this. I really love this in theory. In practice, not not the greatest music. It's a little hokey. Uh, it's not not exactly box mass in B minor. You know, not gr- if it were Gregorian chant, we'd be somewhere. But I don't can't say I love the musical stylings here. And if I were sitting on the airplane, I'd probably say, you know, how about just sit down and pray your rosary and don't we don't need to. But I do like the idea of a public acknowledgement of Easter. And Ilhan Omar was really upset about this. Ilhan Omar tweeted out, she said, I think my family and I should have a prayer session next time I'm on a plane. How do you think it will end? Well, Muslims play on airplanes all the time. Probably not in the middle of the aisle. That would be a little strange, but it would be strange because America is a Christian country. And so that would be unusual to have Muslim prayers, say during Ramadan on an airplane. Certainly on, I mean, it's Easter, it's Easter Sunday. Just like if I were in a Muslim country, if I were in Saudi Arabia and I got up and started playing Christian music, that would probably be weird and probably be frowned upon because they're different things. And what the point that the libs are making here is Christianity should have no special place in America. This is a totally secular country. Get they, By the way, they would never make any problem about a Muslim getting up and praying on an airplane. They're only doing it because they don't like Christianity. But that's, that's not really the American tradition. America has viewed itself for the vast majority of its history as a Christian country. They used to light up the big buildings in New York and Chicago with crosses on Easter Sunday. They used to rec- there used to be religious Christian proclamations from the White House from, because we're a country with standards, with norms, with a view of itself that has, that, that's entire understanding of what it even means to be a country. To hold truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights comes from Christianity. And we have a right to those standards, and we have a right to those norms, and we have a right to that traditional way of life. And we have a right even to do certain things at 30,000 feet, notably at the very least, to breathe the free air as of yesterday. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. See you tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidovsky. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Associate producer, Justine Turley. Audio mixer, Mike Coromina. And hair and makeup by Cherokee Hart. Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Hey there, this is John Bickley, Daily Wire editor-in-chief and co-host of Morning Wire. On today's episode, a federal judge strikes down the airline mask mandate, the latest from Ukraine, and crime is on the rise in LA's wealthier neighborhoods. Join us and get the facts first on the news you need to know with our show, Morning Wire.